and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host. Each week, we interview an author with an important and interesting book about public policy. This week, the author is going to be Alan Jacobs, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. I met Alan when he came to speak about his book here at Hudson Institute, and he gave a really meaningful and serious, significant presentation about how important reading has been to him to his life and how important it should be in all of our lives. And I know if you're listening to this podcast that reading is important to you as it is to me. And so I made sure that I would schedule him for the podcast and we could have a conversation about how to read, especially in this age where we have all kinds of screen distractions taking us away. And in fact, while I was reading the book, I kept feeling guilty if I would ever look at my email or answer a phone call or uh, handle my cell phone. So um, I read the book, I enjoyed the book, and I hope you Enjoy the interview. Alan Jacobs, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tevi. It's good to be here. Well, I know uh, we've been trying to plan this podcast for a while. You are now back in the U.S. of A., and you have written a fascinating book, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. And as we were talking before the recording began, there are a lot of distractions out there these days. But before I get – sorry, before I get deeply into the – details of your book. I just want you to tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book. Okay. Well, um, I am and, and have been for about 25 years now an English professor. Uh, but I think maybe more importantly, long before that, I was uh, a reader. Um, uh, I grew up in a, a, a household of readers. We were not uh, a well-educated family. Uh, I'm the first person in my family to have gone to college, the only person so far uh, but we were readers, and, and that's very foundational to who I am, um, and uh, I think much more so than being a professor. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed uh, over the last few years is that when I talk to people about uh, just, you know, in, at parties or people you meet on the airplane or just random conversations, there's always this kind of funny vibe you get. When people find out you're an English professor, they usually say, oh, I need to watch my grammar or something of that kind. Or they say, oh, uh, I, you know, I, I've never read as much Shakespeare as I wish I had or that kind of thing. But a new edge started to come into those conversations over the last few years. And what I started hearing from people more and more often was not the familiar old stuff, but instead oh, yeah, I used to be able to read. I used to read literature. I used to love to read literature, but now I can't do it anymore. Um, and there would be these sort of mournful tones of, um, you know, gee, what's wrong with me? I'm, and it was always the answers, I, I'm, I don't have uh, the concentration span I once had. I'm too easily distracted. There are too many things getting in my way. And what I found disturbing about these conversations was how fatalistic people were about it. Like, yeah, I I used to be able to read. I can't do it anymore. um, And I suppose I never will was the implicit subtext. And so I really wrote this book primarily in order to say, yeah, I understand. I experienced those same distractions. I'm very familiar with, with the condition that you're talking about. But I don't think it's an irreversible condition. I don't think it's something that we uh, must simply accept as the, you know, the price we pay for living in a connected world. I think there are ways to restore levels of attention, even in an age of distraction. Um, but I think maybe the primary way to do that is to remember how much fun it was to read, um, not to beat yourself over the head and not to uh, you know, wail and lament and, and tear your clothing, um, but, but just to recall uh, wow, that used to be fun, and maybe that can be fun again. 
Well, I hope that all listeners of this podcast, by definition, since it's a podcast about books, are readers and have not lost that interest in reading. But I will give you one tip if you don't want people sitting next to you in an airplane to find out that you're an English professor and have these mournful laments, you do what I do, which is as soon as I get in my seat, I take my book and I bring it as close to my face as possible, yeah. <laughs> thereby signaling with my body language that I am here to read and I am a reader and that nothing will deter me on that flight. Uh, you raised a really interesting point right at the beginning of your answer to my question, which is you came from a family that was not well-educated. You were the first person to go to college, but it was a family of readers, and that yeah. – counters the stereotype that we have in America of people who don't go to college don't read or they you know sit around and watch TV and uh, you know uh, are the the classic couch potatoes can you talk a little bit about why that stereotype is not only unfair but untrue well i think i i think it's it's unfair and and untrue for there's one particular reason um um, I, I think that there are a lot of, I, and I don't want to sound dismissive or of or insulting towards families with high levels of education and, and high levels of academic achievement, but I do think they can that, handle it. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I, I think in many of those families, you 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 have people who read a lot, but it's not out of a love of reading. It's out of a sense that uh, you know either this is what we do or. This is how I signal my intellectual seriousness, or here is how I sort of identify, you know, my my uh, my, my place in the the social hierarchy, or uh, this is what I need to do because I need to get into the university that my dad got into and that he wants me to attend. Uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons for reading in highly educated families that don't have a lot to do with the just sheer pleasure of reading and. Now, in many of those cases, you can end up you can start reading a book because you feel guilty or because somebody is pressuring you to do so or because you think this is what I'm supposed to be doing and end up enjoying it. But I think that often in uh, that 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 doesn't always happen. In fact, it often doesn't happen. And I think that there are there's actually a kind of a, a long history of working class uh, reading that is. Uh, completely self-motivated, um, not really produced by a sense that this is what we're supposed to do, and in fact, often working against a sense of what we're supposed to do. Um, a, a lot of working class people are environments where reading is, is frowned upon, and it's something you, you might not want people to see you doing. Um, and, and I think that in those environments, uh, often there is more of a pure joy uh, just delight in in reading, and you know, for me, growing up, the ordinary daily experience of our life was uh, oddly enough, the television would be on. I mean, it would the television was almost always on in my in my household. My father wouldn't even turn the television off when he went away on vacation. He would just leave it on, <laughs> or he'd be gone for two weeks, and the TV would still be on. If they weren't but, worried about the electricity bills back then, that's right. Yeah, and. And, and what, what, but what was odd is that it would be normal to walk into the, the, the living room of our house and the TV would be on and there'd be three people in the room reading and nobody looking at the TV. It would you know, just be a kind of a murmur in the background. Um, and everybody would be reading their own books and it's typically popular fiction. But there was this kind of uh, habituation within the family that this is something you can do. You can sit in the room, there's noise going on around you, but you can find what what one working class reader whom I quote in my book called a cone of silence 
where you can focus on your book and you can focus on this reading experience and, and, and be wrapped up in it in some way. And so I grew up with that being a very normal experience, that being in some ways the default way that the family would be uh, together with one another. And I think that has a huge impact. Um, in fact, one of the things that I do worry about is how helpful my book can be to people who have never had that experience and who have never really had modeled for them or have never experienced themselves this this whole business of being lost in a book. I, I, I don't know what, how you get that if you've never seen it done. I worry about that a bit. Or heard it done. You've got this wonderful line towards the end of the book where you talk about the special silence of a child's reading. You called it yeah. reading silence, how somebody could identify when children are reading just by, by that type of silence. Can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, uh, yeah I believe that's, uh, if I'm remembering rightly, that's, that, that's Francis Spufford, but I may be wrong about that. But yeah, this, this, there's this particular kind of concentration, this particular kind of stillness that children have when they're absorbed in a book. And I think that you see that, uh, you know, it's, it's a transition, obviously, that they go through. Children don't begin by reading books. They begin by having them read to them. Um, I had, a, uh, in fact, a, a very close friend of mine who, who struggled uh, with his son, who was clearly intelligent but was not learning to read. And uh, uh, after a while, the little boy broke down and confessed that he didn't want to learn to read because he was afraid that if he did, his dad would never read stories to him again. So he was he was pretending he couldn't read so that his father would still read stories to him. But he was when once he was told, it's OK, I'll read you stories whenever you want for the rest of your life. If you're 50 years old and you want me to read a story to you, I will. Then the little boy had the permission to read on his own. And once kids get that. They, they, they make, once they make that transition, it's, it's really fascinating to see how that can make them still in a way that almost nothing else can. Um, the, being lost in a book creates a kind of stillness and silence that, that kids just don't experience in uh, other ways. I mean, you're never still or silent in that way when you're playing a video game or when you're doing something on the computer, it's, it's, uh, or even when you're listening to music. It's a, it's a unique kind of stillness and silence. I think it's really good for kids to have that experience, but I'm afraid it's less and less common these days. Yeah, just for the record, uh, your book does not have an index, but I did flip through quickly. There's a short enough book that I was able to identify that it is Francis Spufford who okay. made a comment about the, the reading silence. Uh, okay. We talk today about how in some ways people are distracted and people are looking at their phones or their screens or whatever mm -hmm. and, and not paying attention. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in some ways, it's a golden age of Americans reading. You've got um, more yeah. Americans reading ever than ever before. You've got um, that thousands of books are, are uh, published every year. Seventy percent of Americans attend college. They don't all complete it. Um, mm -hmm. The GI Bill really brought college and higher education to a whole swaths of people who didn't have it before. Yeah. And at the same time, 40 percent of Americans read less than one book a year. Is this sort of another instance of our bifurcated society? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's actually extremely difficult to make sense of all of the data because the data points seem to be uh, pointing in different directions. It's, it's, it's hard to figure out. I think one of the things that makes it especially hard to figure out is that we, we haven't answered and perhaps we can't answer a really fundamental question, which is you know, how many people or what percentage of a society can we reasonably expect to be devoted readers? 
Um, I mean, even in a society where literacy is very high, which is certainly true of our society, and you look at if you look at things historically, um, being literate is not the same as being a reader. Um, and, and it might be that just really being a serious reader, someone who devours many books over the course of a year, or even several books over the course of the year, it may be that that's just going to be a minority pursuit. It, it might be that that's it's just not likely that it's something that the majority of any you know particular population is likely to do. I don't know. I, I think that's something that's really hard to tell. So I look at this. Uh, I look at the data, and what I see is is uh, something that interests me and then encourages me to a certain extent. Is that um, uh, when Dana Joya was the head of the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, he commissioned several surveys of American reading habits. And the most recent one, the one that he commissioned right at the end of his tenure with the NEA, um, indicated an upturn in literary reading uh, or long-form reading. That is, uh, after a period, a considerable period of decline, um, people there was now this upturn, and more, a higher percentage of Americans were reading books, um, especially literary books, but I think also other kinds of long-form, you know, book length. Uh, narratives, histories, biographies, and the like. And I, I'm, I may be wrong about this. I'm kind of going out on a limb with this one, but I think that that upturn may be related to the creation of the e-reader, the electronic reader market. Because, and and, and I, I'm going to generalize from a particular experience here, but. I feel these distractions as much as everybody else. I have an iPhone. I have a computer that's online all the time. Uh, I have email coming in. I have text messages coming in. I'm on Twitter. I've got all this stuff going RSS on. RSS feeds, you said. RSS feeds, yeah. And it's just so, you know, I, I get bombarded with this too. And, you know, it was about three years ago that I began to get seriously worried about my own powers of concentration and whether I I didn't I didn't think, oh, I've lost them. I'll never get them back. But I started thinking seriously about what I needed to do to arrest this development and to turn things around. And the thing that was more helpful to me than anything else was when I bought a Kindle, uh, because I think uh, a, I have this kind of this little theory that for people who are used to doing a lot of texting, uh, Kindles are great because Kindles give you something to do with your thumb, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. or a Nook or another e-reader, you know, because that's how you turn the page, you know, you 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 push the thing with your thumb, um, and and it, that sort of eases the the um, you know the the temptation to 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 be texting, right? Yeah, I'll just do this. I'll use my thumb on this device instead. But I do think that the e-readers have made reading easier for people who are used to screens, who are used to using their thumbs. And I think there may be some connection between the upturn that the NEA survey noted and the rise of e-readers. Um, maybe that's wishful thinking. I don't know, but I'm certainly hopeful that that's the case. Yeah, I was surprised when I read that in your book that you thought that the Kindle helped you expand your powers of uh, of concentration. Uh, it's certainly not uh, intuitive that what people would think that. Yeah. Um, getting, getting back a little bit towards the beginning of the book, can you tell us a little bit about Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren mm -hmm. and what they have mm -hmm. told the American people or all of us about reading and, and the way to read? Yeah, I think, I think um, there, there's, uh, first of all, I need to say that, you know, I've heard from a lot of people since I wrote the book who said, but 
the Adler and Van Dorian, Doran How to Read a Book really helped me. Um, and, and so I want to acknowledge that it does really, really help people. And there are people for whom this more methodical approach um, is, is the right one, because Adler and Van, are, and Van Doren are methodical. They say, okay, here's how to read a book. Um, we're going to lay it out for you. We're going to tell you, here's the books that you should be reading. Uh, here is the kind of reading you should be pursuing. Here is how you should go about it. They're, they're very directive in their, in their approach. And that clearly is something that a lot of people want because the book has been in print in multiple editions for 70 years. Um, my concern is that it, I just I know that I'm resistant to arguments that say you need to do this because it's good for you. Um, I, I, I rebel against, uh, you know, being told that this is how I should eat and this is how I should exercise and this is how I should do whatever. Um, now, sometimes I overcome that rebellion because indeed I should eat my vegetables and indeed I should exercise regularly. And so, you know, I managed to do those things with some degree of consistency. As should we all. But, as should we all. You know, don't want to deny that. Um, but I I also, but, but I just didn't like the idea of putting reading in that category, you know, to make reading just one more guilt trip. Um, I, I think for some people that might be motivating, but I think for a lot of people, it's the opposite of motivating. It's like, oh, great. One more thing I'm supposed to do. I've got to eat my vegetables. I've got to have low fiber. I've got to have high fiber food. I've got to have low fat. I need to do this much exercise a week. And then now I'm supposed to read these books. Um, and, and I, and, and I think that's just, that just sounded discouraging to me, and I felt it might to other people. And then I also think there's one other thing, and that's that people talk about how, you know, you, 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 if they say you should read books because it's good for you, well, how is it good for me? Well, often people will say, well, it'll make you a better person. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I look at people who read a lot of books, and I don't see them as being morally superior to people who don't read a lot of books, you know, or at least not in any straightforward way. Some cases so, worse. In some cases worse, depending on what you read and who you are. And so I, I, I just I felt I don't want to make this art this, you know, reading books is good for you argument because I just I don't think it is in a straightforward way. I think reading can be good for you. It can be very good for you. But again, it depends on who you, what you read, why you read it, and who you are. So for those two reasons, I decided that I wanted to make an appeal not to guilt, uh, not to a sense of, 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 of sort of ethical responsibility or to what C.S. Lewis called social and personal hygiene, uh, but instead to pleasure. I decided I was going to make a hedonistic appeal. I was going to try to win people back to books again, primarily by saying, hey, remember how much fun that was? Do you remember how much you used to enjoy reading these books? And that's a pleasure worth getting back. And if people come back because of pleasure, then I think we can have a conversation a little later on about ethics. Um, but let's, let's start with, with, with the joy of it, um, and then we'll work our way around to other things later on. Well, you talk about that in the book, the, the three reasons for reading. There's uh, reading, there's entertainment or pleasure, uh, information, and understanding. And you talked a little bit about yeah. pleasure. Can you talk about the two other reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think first of all, there is um, – uh, I, I was really taken in the early stages of 
of uh, reading, uh, of researching for this book with a um, um, quote, I think I, I got it from Nicholas Carr, the author of The Shallows, but, I, I'm, um, but it, it came from another book um, where there was um, uh, a, a student leader at Florida State University. I think he may have been the president of the student body, but in, in any case, he was some student leader, uh, very highly respected at the school, a high achieving student, spoke to the trustees of the university and said, yeah, I don't I don't read books anymore and I don't see any reason to read books. Uh, if I want information, I'll go to Google and I, I, that's much quicker and more efficient. I'm getting heart um, palpitations just listening to it, but go on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you know, why, why bother? Why bother with the books? And, and and it occurred to me that this was someone, uh, whatever virtues that he might have, had never considered books as anything except sources of information, and had never considered reading as anything other than uploading. Uh, that you're just uploading data. That's all you're doing. So if you could, you know, just kind of, you know, ram a USB stick into the side of your head and just upload it directly, that would be you know, the ideal thing for him, um, you know, the fastest transfer possible. Um, and, and so I think, OK, uh, there are times when we read for information um, and, you know, that's certainly one of the reasons to read. And uh, when that is the case, we typically want to get that information as as quickly as we can and as efficiently as we can. But that those criteria don't apply when you're talking about either um, pleasure or understanding. Um, and I think when you're reading for understanding, when you are trying, I would put it, you know, to to become wiser, when you are, are sort of trying to in, increase not just your knowledge, but your discernment, your discretion, your sensitivity, your awareness of the world, that's not something that you can rush through, and it's not something you should try to rush through. Uh, it's uh, the experience itself. Uh, uh, the, the time that you take is uh, enriching, um, and it wouldn't be better if it were faster. And that's one of the reasons why, as, as I'm sure you recall, I protest against these these lists of well, here are you know so many books that you should read before you die, because when you have those kinds of lists, it becomes a matter of trying to get through them. And in that case, the faster you read, the faster you can get to the end of your list. And the, the 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 faster that you can come to this moment of self congratulation, in which you can say, "Yes, I made it through my list. I did well." Well, that's great, except that you're losing the possibility for both pleasure and understanding by having as this this goal something that requires you to get through the reading as quickly as possible. So the books themselves. Are, are only secondarily valuable. What's really valuable to you in that case is to complete your list. And so I hate those lists. They drive me crazy because I think we would be much better off reading a, a, an important book slowly and maybe reading it two or three times and not getting to those other books on the list because we are extracting the maximum understanding from this one book or this handful of books. That seems to me to be something that the lists prevent us from thinking about and the uploading model prevents us from thinking about. So I was trying to 
call attention to that possibility. Well, you say at one point that you make your students read poems five times before proceeding. Yeah, so, uh, that, that, yeah. That's I, I mean, from... I think especially with poetry, which is so dense, uh, I tell them, uh, you know, when you read a novel, you know, if you read it one time carefully, then you've done what you should do. Uh, but you can't read poetry that way, which is why I might assign you 10 pages of poetry uh, for 100 pages of, liter of, of fiction. Uh, so if I assign you just 10 pages of poetry, I'm expecting you to read it five times. I'm expecting you to really absorb what's going on there. You just have to think of it as a different kind of experience than the experience of getting from the beginning to the end of a story. Well, given that you reject the... Van Doren and Adler model and the whole list approach. You do have an alternative that I'd like you to talk about, which mm. is this whole notion mm. of reading at whim. And yeah. I'd like you to, uh, to expound on that, but also to talk a little bit about what reading at whim means in the Internet age. In some ways, it makes reading at whim harder because you find what you're looking for more easily. But on the other hand, you said it yeah. creates other opportunities for whim. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I mean, I think this is uh, really intrinsic to the model that, uh, that that I'm trying to approach. And and, and this is what, uh, this particular aspect of the book comes from my experience with, um, with, with my students who are graduating. Um, every year I have students come to my office who say, it's usually in the spring semester, and they say, um, Dr. Jacobs, I'm, I'm graduating this this uh, uh, spring, and I, I, I want to keep being a serious reader. Um, so could you give me a list <laughs> of you know, 10 books that every educated person should read or 10 of your favorite novels or, you know, they, they want ongoing guidance. And uh, my response to them is, is usually, hey, you're free now. You don't have to do this anymore. You know, you've been reading under the guidance of teachers for most of your life. Now that you graduate, you get to make your own choices, and you should see that as an opportunity rather than as something to be afraid of. So I tell them, read what you want to read. Read at whim. And, and when I tell them that, they say, they, they often look somewhat nervous. Um, I have many, I have wonderful students. They, they, they're dutiful. Um, which is which is wonderful in many respects, but you know, like anything else, you can carry it to to an extreme. Um, and they look sort of worried, you know, that they 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 they're much more comfortable reading under direction. And and sometimes they they confess. They say, but I'm afraid that if I just read what I want to read, I'll read junk. Um, and and to that, I usually have a couple of responses. One is, well, you know. First of all, that you might learn something about yourself. Then uh, you might learn something, you know, worth knowing if all you want to read is junk. But my guess is that you might want, once you graduate, to read some trashy popular fiction, uh, you know, or go back and read the Harry Potter books again, or do something like that. Um, but after a season of that, you might be looking for something a little more. You might say, well, that was fun, but I want a little more. And I think that that's what they're likely to discover. But that's kind of still, as I call it, under the sign of whim. Your whims are different now. You know, it's like, yeah, I did that. I fulfilled all that. But now I want something a little more. And then you begin a quest for deeper knowledge but that quest for deeper knowledge is something that's self-motivated. It's not something that your teacher is telling you to do, but it's something, yeah, I really want this. Um, I think 
that if you really, if you when you get into that phase of I really want something more, then in one sense it's fantastic to be in the internet age because you're going to be able to find what you want. Um, it, you're you're not going to be at a loss uh, to find what you want. The resources are out there and they're easy for you to pursue and to discover. It's I mean all that's wonderful, but it's also the case that the internet provides the opportunity for you to follow a, an infinite number of bunny rabbit trails <laughs> that will take you farther and farther away from the thing. It, it, it's sort of, you're, you're sort of constantly on the internet in that situation that we've all experienced when we were looking up something in a dictionary or an encyclopedia. You're thumbing through the dictionary encyclopedia to find something, and then something catches your eye along the way. And you go, oh, that's interesting. And you read that, and that leads you to something else. And five minutes later, you realize, wait, what did I come here for? What was it that I was looking for? Um, that happens when you're, uh, whenever you have a reference book in your hands, or at least it happens whenever I have a reference book in my hands. But it happens constantly on the Internet. I mean, the Internet, just you just follow the links, you know, the, off you go. Um, and so while the Internet provides all of these opportunities, it also – uh, provides enormous challenges. And um, in, that, in that light, I'm reminded of something that Clay Shirky at NYU says. There's a lot of, I, I'm not crazy about Clay Shirky in a lot of respects, but he said one thing that was really smart, I think. Um, he said, you know, our problem is not information overload. Our problem is filter failures. Um, that we, we, yeah, the information's there, but that's not the problem. The problem is we don't know how to filter it well. And I think that those are really the strategies that uh, that that people need who are in an Internet culture in order to be able to follow their whims and to find the things that they're really interested in is to develop strategies of filtering the information. And that's actually something I've turned to spending a lot of time on in my teaching, because I think it's something that students really need to know, especially. Seems like uh, this filtration tool or skill is something you want your readers to have you we mentioned already you don't have an index for your book there are real there right. are no real chapters in the book no there are some no. section headings right. but it i mean in, right. in in some ways it's like that onion article that you refer to the very funny one that uh americans terrified at the prospect of a large uninterrupted block of text <laughs> right 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 is that no. intentional <laughs> yeah well um yes it is intentional but not quite for that reason um what I wanted this to be is it was really a function of, of, of two things. First of all, my own natural uh, inclinations as a writer. And then secondly, my attempt to do something that's really very different than the Adler and Van Doren model. Um, what I decided that I wanted to do in this book was to not, not to write a kind of a treatise, uh, but to write an essay. It's, it's simply an extended essay. Um, and, and that's fundamentally the kind of writer I am. I'm an essayist. I've published three books of essays and I have, you know, many other, I have another collection that I'm putting together now. And that's my, that's my natural medium. I do write other things. I've written a biography. I've written a lot of stuff, but the essay is my sort of natural environment. And the thing that I like about, an, uh, about the essay as a form is that it's a, a sort of a way of following the track of your own mind. Um, it has a kind of an intrinsic, intrinsically casual and unplanned character. Um, and I think that actually that, that not only is that the way that I think and the way that I prefer to write, but I think it's also um, something that's suited for our age. 
um, I think that the highly organized and highly sequential um, uh, treatise is something that, again, a lot of people really do like it. But I think that especially the people who have gotten away from reading and the people who are feeling guilty about having gotten away from reading are, are people who are m more likely to be attracted to uh, a, a more casual and conversational approach. And so that's why I chose that model. I had um, um, I knew that I was going to do that uh, with the instead of having chapters as such, I was going to have these sections, which are really chapters, but they're just more subtly indicated. Um, but I had a, a really tough decision to make about the index, because on one level, I really wanted to provide an index. And on another level, I thought but that's not really fitting the character of the way that I've told the story and the way that I've pursued the topic. And so in the end, I decided not to do it. I'm a big index fan, but I think in yeah. this particular case, I think your decision was wise and appropriate. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I do want to end, though, with our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, since it is a pu public policy podcast. Mm -hmm. What public policy initiatives would you recommend to promote reading and to promote the appropriate type of reading for understanding, as, as you discuss in the book? And then also, can you just tell uh, – you mentioned that you tweet. Can you tell um, listeners what your Twitter feed is as well? Yeah, my my uh, uh, Twitter handle is A-J-A-Y-J-A-Y. Um, I, about the public policy, I am uh, – one of my great regrets uh, is that Dana Joya is no longer with the NEA um, because I think um, Dana I, – I, I just think the world of him. Um, and what I would love uh, to ask him is, um, so what do you do – first of all, how do you account for this uptick in literary reading? Um, and secondly – um, what would you do to further encourage it? Um, and uh, I feel like uh, somebody who's been with the NEA is someone you know who knows uh, who knows that uh, who, who might have some interesting ideas about that. But I would say fundamentally, uh, fundamentally, I am uh, my, my own personal inclination is to be shy of think about thinking of reading in a public policy kind of um, uh, in, in that way. Because I think it can so easily get away from the, uh, the, the these ideas of whim and pleasure that I emphasize so much. Um, I, I think that an Adler and Van Doren model is – I think Adler and Van Doren would be happy to have a public policy model because they think of reading as something which promotes the common good, and that's what public policy needs to do. However, one defines the public good and however one the common good and however one thinks that it should be pursued. That's the goal of any legitimate public policy is to promote the common good. So can that be done in a way that still promotes the idea of reading as something one does at whim and for the pleasure of it? I, I don't see the way to do that. So what I would hope to do is to. Uh, on, on, on a purely private way, uh, restore to some readers the pleasures of reading. And if we can create a larger culture of readers, a larger body of readers in the country, then it might be time to start talking about the public policy uh, implications. But, but I, I want it to be a private initiative at this point because of my belief 
that we're more likely to get people restored to the reading world by emphasizing pleasure and whim. You know, I think that's a perfectly appropriate public policy recommendation to not pursue a public policy. Not everything that is good should be pursued via public policy. So with that, I will say thank you, Alan Jacobs, for joining us on the podcast. The book, again, is The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I always close the podcast with the words keep reading, and I will do so again today, but I think Alan Jacobs would endorse that. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Tevi. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Alan Jacobs, author of The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. This man takes reading very seriously. He thinks it's not for amateurs, or actually he does think it's for amateurs and for everybody, but that it needs to be done in a serious way, although not in an overly structured way, in a way that allows you to reach higher understanding through reading. And he has talked about how sometimes his students want him to spoon-feed them lists say, you know, read this, read that, and he says that that is not the way it should happen, that you should listen to your whim, to your whimsy, I suppose, in terms of finding books that speak to you, and that artificial lists don't really solve problems. So I hope this podcast helps all of you discover the books that work best for you, that will lead you to have information, as he says, pleasure, and also understanding. With that in mind... Appreciate your listening to the podcast. 